0: By the time that Simon got back to Athens, in 451, the First Peloponnesian War had been going on for almost 10 years, and a lot of things had changed since he left. When he got back, Athens had been working on expanding itself into the mainland of Greece. It already had a sea empire. It already controlled a lot of the islands in the Delian League that it was running. But now, it was looking inland. They had expanded to the north and taken Boeotia as well. They then looked to the west and they started raiding the coast of the Peloponnese. Pericles himself led a lot of these raids. This was where he really started to get a lot of credit for his expeditions here. Plutarch even says that when Pericles would go out, nothing could touch him, not just other armies, but not even the weather, things like chance. He seemed like everywhere he went, he was just blessed. But all this expansion, they had spread Athens out pretty thin. Maybe not too thin, but it was right around their limit. They were starting to spin plates and they were adding more and more. You see, they had their hands in everything. Not only were they expanding to the north into Boeotia, and to the west into the Peloponnese, and raiding all over the Peloponnese, but they were garrisoning different city states as well, including Megara, that really strategic ally that they had made when this whole war started that was right in between them and Sparta and Corinth. And then on top of all these expeditions and conquests, they were still going around the Aegean Sea, putting down rebellions when they popped up. And for now, Athens is doing this amazingly. It's keeping its hands in all these different parts of Greece, controlling different entities, and still expanding its power. They have really done nothing but grow for the past 30 years. So the question becomes, as they keep spinning plates, what's their capacity? As rebellions keep popping up, when does it become impossible for them to keep all this up? When do they drop something? Because really, if you look really close right now, you can see some of these plates start to slip. In the end, it's our ideals, our values, that built America. From the of Apollo 8. Values that allowed us to forge a nation. Close with good night. To me, the flag has been more than just merely an inspiration. Good luck. I am not a perfect servant. I am a public servant. And God bless all of you. They have chosen to risk death rather than slavery. All of you on the good earth. And therein lies the road to war. This is History in the Making. I'm Rob Sims, and you're listening to episode 13, Ascension. In all fairness to Athens, the reason that this plate is starting to slip is because somebody ran up and punched them. You see, they're sending support to Egypt in order to aid these rebellions against the Persians, but eventually these met with disaster, and so they sent more support, and they were defeated. We mentioned this last episode. So we need to do a little bit of an overlap here, just a couple years from the previous episode, because in order to really move forward well, we need more context. This defeat in Egypt happens for the Athenian support. And the only good side of it is that Pericles is able to use it as an excuse to move the entire treasury of the league back to Athens, which was abrupt, by the way. I mean, they were building temples on Delos, the island where they kept the treasury, to house the treasury, when suddenly it was just canceled and everything was brought back to Athens. This is not something that anybody expected. However, even by Pericles' own admission, it was in danger. Therefore, they might not have had control of the sea. And so all the little city-states that were around, especially the ones on islands, started to think, Athens might not be able to touch us as much. They don't control the sea completely right now. And so as a result, tributes started to go down. In 454, when these disasters really met their final stages, there was about 208 city-states paying tribute to Athens. 208 from all over the Aegean. Now in 450, just a few years later, there's only 163. Not all these cities were in open rebellion, but a lot of them were starting to realize Athens can't touch us right now, and so we're just not going to pay him. This likely prompted even larger revolts, though, that we will get into. So it's very fortunate for Athens that right around this time, Simon comes back. He's able to broker that five-year truce with Sparta. But remember, this is not a permanent peace agreement. This is a truce. This is something where we can all take a little bit of a breather, reassess where we are, reassess where our enemy is, and then come to a more permanent peace. So this is only going to go on for five years here. Part of this truce, though, is that Athens has to give up the alliance that it made with Argos, the natural enemy of Sparta. As a result, since Argos kind of gets left out in the cold here, they make a 30-year peace with Sparta. So, ding, there goes one ally of Athens. This maybe made them a little more exposed in the long term, but for now it helped them get that break with Sparta that they needed to inhale, to catch their breath. And Simon coming back has a big impact, not just because of the truce with Sparta, which in all likelihood would have been very difficult to get without him. His foreign policy is that he believes Athens and Sparta should work together instead of trying to fight each other. And Sparta appreciates this, and so even though they kind of hate Athens... They're usually willing to work with Simon. But Simon coming back to Athens means that Athens once again starts to adopt Simon's policy, which is peace with the rest of Greece and aggressive war with Persia. Now, there's a little bit of debate here as far as how intentional it was that Pericles stayed back in the city and essentially ran things there and Simon took the fleet back out. One thought here is that this might have been some type of backroom deal where, okay, Simon can come back to Athens, but then he's going to have to leave and he can control the military and Pericles will stay at home and control the politics. We don't know the accuracy of this, of course. Pericles was fine with his strategy, by the way. If you do a couple quick Google searches on Pericles, you'll probably see him as a radical Democrat. But if you really start looking into the nuance of his character, what you'll find out is that he had no problem making alliances with the moderates and actively seeking them out, while also holding the more radical supporters of democracy in check. Pericles needed to signal to the moderates and to the oligarchs that he wanted a stable democracy. He wasn't going to let the democracy run rampant, and so he would signal this in a couple different ways. One by partnering with Simon, but then something else that he does is restrict citizenship. Up until this point... Citizenship has just been passed down through the father. If your father is a citizen, boom, you're automatically a citizen. Pericles passes this bill that restricts citizenship only to those that have a full citizen father and a full citizen mother. Now, given that if you want democratic power, if you want to be able to stir up a democracy and then run it in all of its power, you need a large population base, and Pericles is limiting it. A lot of the writing on this, um, Donald Kagan stands out especially, he points out that this is probably some type of olive branch to the oligarchs. In addition, it is really expensive to pay for all the programs that are happening right now because the population of Athens was swelling. Not only was it just growing naturally, but Athens was the place to be if you were Greek. And so there were immigrants coming in from all these other different city-states And a variety of them, too. There were people that were coming in because they wanted to learn or spread their knowledge. There were also people coming in just looking to make a better life for themselves. And we're going to drop down into the streets a little bit later and meet a lot of these people. But for now, the long and short of it is that when Simon gets back, he takes a fleet out again. He takes 200 ships, he sails back east, and he attacks Cyprus, which is affiliated with Persia. And then 60 of these ships, though, he sends down to Egypt to support the revolts that are still going on down there. At first, everything goes great. The Egyptian detachment does well, and he sets up this big siege on one of the cities on Cyprus. But while the siege is ongoing, Simon either gets wounded or maybe gets sick, but he catches this infection, and he gets sick, and he dies. One of the greatest tragedies, I think, of ancient history is how abruptly some of these people can step off of the stage. But it mirrors in many ways his father, Miltiades, because this would not be an episode of history in the making if we did not mention Miltiades. But Miltiades led the Battle of Marathon, as I hope you know by now, but he was right there at the beginning of the Persian Wars. He received a wound during a siege that later got infected and he died. His son Simon is fighting at the sunset of the Persian Wars in some of the last meaningful battles against the Persians, and also gets infected during a siege and dies. This father-son legacy is really remarkable. Multides for starting it, but Simon for carrying it on and leading the aristocratic party while also being kind to the people. Simon is the great diplomat warrior of his time. He was courageous at sea he won incredible battles against the persians but then also knew how to make peace with the rest of greece simon was a stabilizing force for greece and now he was gone when he died the siege was broken the fleet pulled back as they were pulling back they actually had one big engagement with a bunch of persian allies and they won but after that the fleet went back to Athens. Now, it's because of this repeated visitation to Persian waters that Athens convinced Persia to back off. Now, in all fairness, we don't know what form this took. Actually, this peace between Athens and Persia is one of the most contested aspects of our story. The question here really just boils down to, is there actually a treaty that Athens and Persia got together and signed, or did they just finally grow tired of fighting each other? What we do know, though, is that In this same year, Athens diverted a lot of its military money into domestic programs, and so it's a pretty strong indication that there was at least some knowledge that there was now peace with Persia. Allegedly, though, if this really is a treaty that Athens signed with Persia, the man that negotiated it was a relative of Simon. You see, this is another tip of the hat by Pericles to the oligarchs. You can stack this up with the fact that he actually divorces his wife a little before this part of the story, and then has her married off to one of the blue-blooded oligarchs. You see, Pericles doesn't just have to worry about Persia or Sparta or rebellions. He also has to worry about politics, not just simply Democrats and oligarchs and the aristocrats but also different families and what they think of each other. Basically, what we're looking at, if you're Pericles, you're playing a game of three-dimensional chess where every once in a while, everybody shows up with swords. But it's because he's so good at this game that he's able to create some stability. Now, we have a piece with Sparta. It's a temporary piece, but it buys us some time. We have a more permanent piece of some variety with Persia. So now Athens can actually focus on on the rebellions that's going on. These little city-states that every once in a while decide that they no longer wanna be part of this league that Athens is running, and so they take up arms. Athens, Pericles, can now really focus on dealing with this now. First off, there are real benefits for these cities to be part of this league. A lot of these places are tiny. Some of them are even on islands out in the middle of the Aegean Sea, And so if they look east, there's Persia. If they look west, there's a bigger Greek city-state that could probably come take them over. And they're so small that they can't even build the triremes they need to protect their island. And even if Athens gave them triremes, they don't even have the ability to store them. You see, they had to be stored dry in these docks that Athens had plenty of. Not only this, but trade was flourishing because of what Athens had done, and Simon clearing the pirates out of the Aegean Sea, establishing big trade networks. And then Athens was trying to be friendly about this where it could. It actually suspended tribute in this year in 449, where the peace came on with Persia. And Athens would foot the bill for a lot of the expenses of defending the league. So remember, not everybody here is mad at Athens. Some of them are probably pretty happy about their situation. Some years there are three, four, maybe even five or more cities rebelling against Athens. But there are well over a 100, maybe even 200, that are all sending cash to Athens. But if those were all the carrots that Athens used to bring these cities back into the fold, they also had plenty of sticks. For a rebellion, their standard operating procedure was to go in... They'd knock out the government that was in place, usually an oligarchy, replace it with a democracy, they'd take some land from the city-state, and then occasionally even make the city-state knock down their walls and give up any military they had, because after all, Athens might say, why would you need a military? You've got us. Some of the people in Athens even wanted to go so far as to close down all the allied mints, the coinage factories essentially, and then make everybody use Athenian coinage, this didn't go through, but the interesting thing about this bill is that Athens was planning on sending this bill out to its allies nominally, and then they would post this decree up. The cool little assumption, though, that this bill had in it is that, you know, if you can't post it yourself, that's fine. Some of the Athenian officials in your city can post it up for you. They're making an assumption here that Athens is going to have a legal presence in these other city-states. This is a big indicator. The final move that they would do, which was arguably their most effective, is that they would take some of their citizens, usually landless, poor people, and relocate them into these other cities. But then when they moved, they wouldn't become citizens of this other city. They would stay citizens of Athens, and the land that they settled on would be Athenian soil. Athens was essentially putting little pockets of citizens, garrisons around certain, especially troubling other city-states. And this was a nice little two-for-one deal. One of the big virtues in Athens at this time was industry. People should be working and they should earn their keep in the city and they should do something for the city. It's very similar to America in this way. They didn't want all the poor just to be taking money from their welfare programs, and then not giving anything back. So this was a way that Pericles could take the poor, scrape them off the city, and then send them to other city-states where they'd be a useful garrison to Athens. In Pericles' mind, this was a win-win, and frankly, in a lot of the poor people that left, it was a win-win. They got a chance to maybe get some land, start their life over. This was one of the master moves of Pericles. It reigned in control of these city-states while also keeping the poor, his main source of power, happy. And in the middle of all this, Pericles would occasionally go out leading a fleet, with his reputation for being untouchable, and show the flag in different areas that were causing trouble. So if a city-state was starting to maybe have rumors about a rebellion, boom, an Athenian fleet would show up, Pericles leading it, basically there to just say, hey, I know you're thinking about us. We want you to know we're thinking about you too. So through the carrots and sticks here, Athens had basically tightened its grip in 447. It was bringing everything back under control, collecting tribute from the vast majority of its city-states, the people in the league that owned the money. It had a good peace with Persia where they allegedly had to stay out of the entire Aegean Sea, even a couple days away from the Aegean Sea. And then they had this truce with Sparta. But this is where things start to get a little bit more dicey. You see, overall, Athens had really stabilized itself. But this truce with Sparta was one where they both obeyed the letter of the law, but totally disregarded the spirit of it. For instance, if you remember the oracle at Delphi, who is the center of the world to the Greeks, quite literally, and the voice of Apollo in the Greek world, if this was Catholicism, Delphi would be the Vatican. And so it paid to have control, maybe if not directly, but at least a good relationship with whoever controlled Delphi. And so the Spartans went in there and captured it and then gave it to some of their allies. And two years go by and Athens does the same thing. So Athens and Sparta aren't directly attacking each other, but they're picking these key little strategic positions and fighting indirectly over them. And by the time Athens has tightened its grip over all these little city-states, they only have about a year left of this truce with Sparta. Something has to happen. They need to somehow come to a more permanent peace if war is not going to break out again. But during this period of peace, while Athens is trying to figure out what to do with Sparta, we're going to take advantage of this time and go into its streets. The amount of ideas that we're in Athens right now is unparalleled. Historian Will Durant talks about this period in Athens and says that this discussion of ideas and scientific progression, this would not happen at this pace and this concentration again until the Renaissance. Now, there are so many things going on here that we can't possibly address every idea and person and chain of thought that's going on in Athens. It's a cauldron of different things and out of them are flying ideas like atomic theory, that everything boils down to just one substance, water. And the reason that everything looks different is because water is taking different forms. Then we have people like Empedocles that says, no, everything actually boils down to four different elements. That's earth, wind, fire, and water. And also, by the way, just as a taste of what you might get in Athens, Empedocles was an interesting guy. He would walk around the city wearing gold sandals, a purple toga, and to his friends, he would say he was a god. To strangers, in order not to freak them out, he would simply claim that he was a messenger from the gods and had favor with them. But someone we will spend time on is a man named Protagoras. The reason that Protagoras is so important is not just because he's part of Pericles' inner circle and is all around a fascinating guy, but he represents something much bigger going on right now. Like we mentioned last episode, the juries and the legal system of Athens was becoming far more important. It was big. The juries were enabled. The minimum jury was usually about two to 300 people For really important cases, like a couple that we'll cover in later episodes, the jury could be as many as 1,500 people for one case, for one plaintiff. And these jurors were chosen at the last possible minute before the trial actually took place. So what this meant is that it was really difficult to bribe anybody. No matter how wealthy or well-connected you were, you couldn't pay off 300 people in the blink of an eye before a trial happened. Now, there were other forms of corruption. Perjury, for example, was pretty common, but the courts were busy. This was honestly one of the main revenue streams for Athens was all the fines and confiscations it could pull out of these courts. And then because of the prior reforms, not only the most recent ones, but even going all the way back to Solon, the whole idea is to make justice easy to grasp, to make it transparent, and so that everybody has access to the courts. But what this means is that it is really easy to sue anybody. What some of the people realized is that the wealthy men in Athens might rather just pay a fine to get rid of you instead of going through all the trouble to go to court. And so you'd have some of the less respectable citizens of Athens running around trying to sue the rich people for just anything. Some of the rich people even complained about this at the time. And so between the courts getting so popular, and then the inability to just bribe the right people to get out of it, rhetoric really starts to take place. The ability to speak and convince your audience that you're right. And you wouldn't be able to get it from a traditional Athenian education. Education in Athens lasted, if you were free, from the time that you were six to 16. It was a bit of writing. it was a bit of math. There was some music in there and some gym. And so to fill this gap between what was offered through the traditional education of Athens and what was now starting to be a necessity in the law courts, the sophist came to town. I've also heard it pronounced sophist, by the way. And for now, when you think of a sophist, you need to think of a college professor or a tutor. Somebody that would teach you for a price and very similar to a tutor or a college professor they could vary wildly in how much they would charge you. At the bottom, you had people that were similar to maybe a community college. You could pay the equivalent of a couple hundred bucks and then sit in on their class. You'd be with a big group of other people, but you'd be able to attend their courses. And then at the other end, you had your Ivy League schools. Men who would charge you the equivalent of a four-year degree today, six figures or more. And one of these Ivy League sophists was Protagoras. You see, because with the juries and the courts of Athens getting so busy, people were starting to realize it didn't matter as much if you were right or not as it did that you could present yourself well and speak well. And this is one of the things Protagoras really cashed in on. He was known for saying that there really isn't an absolute right and wrong. He would say that laws, for instance, they weren't good because of their truth. It's just good because of the benefits offered from them. In other words, murdering somebody might not be an absolute wrong. It's just that if everybody did that, it would wreak havoc on society. And when he says this, the traditional Athenians who believe in the gods and think that that's where their sense of morality might come from and they're rewarded for good behavior from the gods, they probably rose an eyebrow at this. But then they really probably freaked out when Protagoras started to say, that man is the measure of all things. In other words, you could kind of think of Protagoras as an early humanist. It's from mankind that morality is derived. This is what he was pushing. And so this is our first blow against the religion of Athens at the time. But while this graded with some of the conservatives, it also made him really popular with other crowds. Think about what it would mean if someone came along and suddenly told you that Everybody could be right all the time. It didn't matter. There was no absolute right and wrong. You could do whatever you want and just justify it somehow. Just present it well. But Protagoras wasn't a con artist or a snake oil salesman. He was very wise. Even Plato speaks of him with respect, and Plato hates the sophist. So it's not just the more unruly crowds of Athens that he becomes popular with, he's also in the inner circle of Pericles. He helps write laws for a city that we'll talk about later. He's well-respected in the community, and it's not just because he's this combination of a slick lawyer and a well-respected professor. The next person we're going to talk about, who is also in the inner circle of Pericles, is a man named Anaxagoras, because we're not going to make this easy. These are Greek names. Anaxagoras would have been considered a philosopher in his own day, But we see him as a scientist, and he was a good one too. A lot of the ideas that Anaxagoras put forward are still seen as correct today. Now, granted, they're nothing like Newton's gravity, but he understood the sun to be a giant flaming rock. He said that the cause of thunder was lightning moving through the air. He said that wind was created by the uneven heating of the earth. Granted, he did think the sun was only a little bit bigger than parts of Greece, But we're going to give that to him. He was fascinated with the heavens, with astronomy. The interesting thing was, though, is that Athens was not. Astronomy was actually banned in Athens. It was almost seen as a form of sacrilege, as a way of prying into the nature of the gods. And so Anaxagoras, who dedicated his life to astronomy, that was his first love by his own admission, So as a result, he didn't really get along with everybody in Athens, but he was generally seen as harmless. A great example of this comes out when we look at one of his theories. You see, he thought a lot of the order in the world was created by a vortex, by spinning of the universe, kind of thinking of the universe as a giant centrifuge. And from that spinning motion, everything gets sorted out. But when people started to ask him about the more nuanced view of why things came together, when we see. The really detailed order in the universe, what causes that? It's not this spinning. And Exagoras would tell them that it's from a noose, or a mind. There's some entity or consciousness that's creating this. And people just kind of laughed this off for the most part. They actually gave him the nickname Noose, which I am probably mispronouncing. But I see him as the Galileo of his day. He has a fascination with the heavens, he's a very educated man, and he is also grating against the beliefs of the time, because what do you think it means when you point to the things that are supposed to be gods and say, no, that's actually a giant flaming rock? But for now, people put up with him. He was in the inner circle of Pericles. He actually was one of the ones to educate Pericles from the beginning. He had been in Athens a couple decades now, but he was part of the group that, intentionally or not was challenging the traditional beliefs of Athens. Think about it. Religion is getting hit from two sides here. On one hand, we have the sophist, Protagoras, saying that religion and the gods are not what give us our sense of morality. It's man. We can make up whatever we want. Then on the other side, you have Anaxagoras, who's saying that nature is its own entity. It has ordered itself. There's some noose or some mine, but the gods are not responsible for everything that you see. Now, as we come closer to a close today, we're going to spend the rest of our time with one final person. A man named Socrates. You've probably heard of him. If not, that's fine. We'll get more into him as the show goes on. Even though he is now one of the most recognized people in not only Greek history, but one could even say all of Western history at least, he's not really anybody right now. He's young, he's maybe late teens, early 20s probably, and he's growing up. He's growing up in the peak golden age of Athens. This was the time where there would be the occasional rebellion breaking out, but for the most part, you could live in the city and just be at peace. There weren't other places coming to attack you, there were no real existential threats just yet. And so at this point, Socrates has had a pretty peaceful life. And we're going to spend the rest of our time following him through the city. You see, he frequents a gym that's out to the southeast of Athens, but he also likes to go up to the northwest of Athens to talk with people. And so we're going to follow him through what one of these walks might have looked like. We join Socrates at the gym, one that he went to quite a bit, actually. It was known as Sin It was on the southeast portion of Athens, near a river down there. It was very scenic. It would have been a nice place to be. And Socrates was probably familiar with this part of the area. You see, if you were wealthy, or even just well off, you could spend as much as 75% of your day at these gyms if you were Greek. But as you left this gym, which would have been a pretty nice place, we don't know exactly where it is, but as you left it, and you started walking towards the city, the first thing you probably would have noticed would be the smell. Not just because it's an ancient city and they don't have plumbing, but because around the southeast side of Athens are tanners, which is a nasty, nasty business. Not only would Socrates be able to see the animal carcasses that are brought in from as far away as the Black Sea and the northern parts of Africa, but he'd be able to smell them too. And even once they had the leather, the hides off of these animals, they would stretch them out and they would treat them with urine or animal waste, the acid of which would purify the leather. But as Socrates kept walking, he would have passed the tanners. He would have come up to one of the more minor gates of the city, the southern gate. And as he walked in, he would have been greeted with quite the view. He would have been standing in largely a residential area, but in sight, in front of him would have been the Theater of Dionysus. Now the theater could seat almost 20,000 people. It was massive. Every March there'd be plays put on here, usually a trilogy, and actually a lot of the plays that we have are little pieces of these trilogies that would be performed at the Theater of Dionysus. This festival was so popular that when a play was about to go on, people would show up there the day before to get their seats. Like they're camping out at a Rolling Stones concert or something. There weren't any VIP seats, it didn't matter if you were rich or poor, all the seating was the same. Athens was big on trying to eliminate the boundaries of class. And as Socrates would have kept walking, moving west and just a little north, he could have looked around and noticed that there wasn't any aristocratic quarter. To date, nothing has been discovered that indicates all the rich people lived in one area. So when we talk about Pericles, don't think about Pericles standing in the middle of the Acropolis in a marble tower. He's down in his mud house, just like everybody else. The walls of these houses were so thin, actually, that a common way of robbing a place would just be to dig through the wall in the night. As Socrates keeps walking west, He's getting closer to the Agora and the Nix, the hill where the assembly meets. And so as he's moving through this residential district, it probably would have been getting a little bit busier. And as he's looking around, he would have noticed that a lot of people are dressed the same. You couldn't tell a slave just by what they were wearing. A prominent man shortly after our story comes to an end complains about this, actually, how you can't strike a slave in the street because you might hit a free person by accident. Because they all look the same. You can't tell. But as Socrates kept walking, it would have brought him right up under the shadow of the Acropolis. Off in front of him would have been the Nyx, the big hill where the assembly meets. Off kind of to his right in front of him a ways would have been the Agora. He probably couldn't see it yet. But as he's walking through all these houses, he could have simply looked up and seen the Parthenon being built. It was started right around this year. Actually, the entire Acropolis is exploding with construction right now. You see, when all the money came back to Athens from the League, what Pericles wanted to do is rebuild all the temples that the Persians burned down. What this was, in a lot of ways, especially since they had just been taking the fight to Persia for the past couple decades, was very similar to how right after 9-11, we decided to build the Freedom Tower. The Acropolis, the Parthenon, all the temples that are going up, or a bold, open challenge to Persia. We'll talk more about the Parthenon once it's complete in the middle of next episode, likely. But as Socrates walked away from the Acropolis and the noise of construction, he would have been greeted with the noise of the Nyx. The Nyx is where the assembly would meet. At a minimum, like we said, most of the decisions had 6,000 people. They met the vast majority of the year. Ideas being debated, things being put towards votes, people voting it down and up, people deciding to stand up in the middle of the assembly and give speeches. Standing around the Nix was standing in the brain of Athens. But if the Nix was the brain of Athens, then the Agora was its beating heart. And Socrates left the Nix and started walking north away from the hill he would have been approaching the Agora. Behind him would have not only been the next, but the gate down to Piraeus and the long walls that connected Athens to the sea. This is where everything would be coming up from the harbor. So as he walked up towards the Agora, he probably would have seen everything being pulled off of the ships and dragged by him on its way to the market. As he came into this market... The combined noise of the nicks behind him and the agora before him must have hit him like a wall. The Athenians had a name for the noise of their streets. It's a Greek word. But if we take that Greek word and go to one of the most common translations of Greek out there, the Bible, we can get an idea for what they mean. When this word is used in the Bible, it's translated as uproar or commotion or as a riot. Socrates would have walked into the Agora, and he would have not have only been met with an uproar with a commotion or a riot, but he would have been met with a sea of statues. Bethany Hughes describes Athens, and I'm paraphrasing here where the breathing population of the city was watched by a population of stone. There were statues everywhere, most of them would have been painted, bright colors standing out in the Greek sun, some of the closest to Socrates as he's standing there is the statue of the 12 heroes of the tribes. You see, when Solon split up Athens into 12 different tribes, he gave each of them a hero from mythology or from legend, and each one of these heroes stood in the Agora. It was a reminder that they all had a voice of their own. In some ways, it was a statue to democracy. You could also see moneylenders. They would sit up there every morning, ready to give out cash to those that might need it. And as Socrates finished walking through the Agora, he would see people making sacrifices in the many temples of the Agora, money changing hands, slaves, freed people, citizens, all walking around doing their business of the day. The one thing he probably would not have seen many of, though, is women. The respectable Athenian woman wouldn't be seen out of her house. During the night, occasionally they would go out sometimes, but for the most part, if you were a woman in Athens and a well-standing citizen, your place was literally in the home. It was very rare for you to come out. Even if you answered your door in the wrong way, it would be seen as shameful. And so the only women that Socrates would have seen right now as he's walking around would have likely been either slaves or prostitutes. The only way to really have a public life in Athens as a woman, was to be a high-class prostitute. It would kind of break the mold of what you were allowed to do, and so it would let you walk around the city with impunity compared to a normal female citizen. Now, Socrates left the Agora. He would have walked up to the main gate of Athens, the Diplon Gate, And this is where you could really see Athens as a fortress city. This gate was probably about 30 feet tall. The courtyard on the inside was 130 feet deep. It covered over 2,000 square yards. There was a fountain here where travelers, as they arrived, they could wash and refresh themselves after coming into Athens. But this place was not necessarily Athens' gem either. This was, in many ways, the red-light district of Athens. There's a line here from a play that's basically just a freeze frame of what this place probably looked like. It's talking about a man that's standing there at his stall, and he sells sausages of mashed up dog and ass meat. Knocks back the booze, trades insults with the prostitutes, slacking his thirst with the used dirty water from the baths. This was not the gym of Athens. But the funny thing is, though... Even though you could come into this area and you could find all types of prostitutes, many of which weren't even allowed into Athens, by the way, if they were captured in war. But you would also once again in Athens find a massive exchange of ideas. This place was bubbling. This place was where you came to test your theories. This is where the sophists would come to bring their ideas. But it's here that Socrates spends a good portion of his youth. This is where you come if you want to see the latest ideas that are being pumped into Athens. And so, what is happening is that while Athens is having its temples built and its laws passed and is shaping itself into a greater and greater form, Socrates is being shaped as well. As always, thank you for listening to History in the Making. Join us next time where we see the end of this truce with Sparta. Athens faces its first real existential threat since the rise, and we introduce a woman who crawls her way through these ranks of prostitutes in Athens to become one of the most influential, not just women, but people in the Greek world. Now, I would like to extend a special thank you to the listeners in the UK and Portugal. Uh, There's been quite a bit of growth over there, and it's certainly not because of anything I'm doing there. So thanks a lot. You're obviously sharing the podcast. That's the best way to make it grow. And I really, really appreciate that. Finally, you've probably noticed that the story is getting a little more complex. We have more characters, more city states are becoming important. And so I'm going to do a little bit of a format change here. I'm still going to aim for every two weeks, but just like this one was late because I needed to make it better before I release it. In the future, they might flex just a little bit. And then the final change is that since things are getting more complex, I'm going to start putting more information up on the website, which is hitmpodcast.com. Up until now, there has been information, but given how complex things are getting, I'm going to start adding cheat sheets, essentially, so you can see the different characters, their importance, what roles they play, maybe relevant city-states, just to help you keep all this in order. But with all that being said, though, thank you, as always, for listening to History in the Making. And I will talk to you, hopefully, in two weeks. Enjoying History in the Making? Leave a review on iTunes. It's a great way to help the show, and it only takes a moment.